Thank you for listening to this Podcast One production. Available on Apple Podcasts and Podcast One. Podcast One presents Fully Booked by Kirkus Reviews. The ultimate insider's scoop on the best new books. Every week, Kirkus brings you author interviews, recommendations from the bestseller lists, and insights into books that are not yet on your radar. Hi, I'm Megan Labrise, editor-at-large of Kirkus Reviews. Welcome to another episode of Fully Booked. Thank you so much for joining us. This week, our best books coverage continues with young readers' literature. For anyone who missed last week's podcast, which kicked off our best books coverage, a petite recap. Every autumn, Kirkus's editors buckle down and begin the long, hard process of determining which books will make our best books of the year. That's five lists, fiction, nonfiction, YA, middle grade, and picture books, each with 100 of our most beloved, well-reviewed books in a given year. Our editors' choices reflect a lot of thought, a lot of heart, and a lot of time. So in celebration here at the Fully Book Podcast, we have extended our best books coverage this year. Last week was fiction, and we welcomed author Lily King, whose short story collection Five Tuesdays in Winter made our fiction list. And then fiction editor Lori Muchnick joined me to talk about the year in reading. So today, as mentioned, we're celebrating the best young readers' literature of the year. Later in the podcast, young readers' editor Laura Simeon joins us for a spirited discussion of some of her highlights from the three YRL lists, picture books, middle grade, and YA. But first, we'll be joined by Kelly Loy Gilbert, author of When We Were Infinite, one of Kirkus's best books of 2021 in YA. This novel is a stunner. The story of California high school senior Beth Clare, who cherishes her close-knit group of friends and wants nothing more than for them all to stay close through graduation and beyond. But a number of serious events truly test them as a group, also as individuals on the cusp of adulthood. In a starred review, Kirkus calls When We Were Infinite beautifully, achingly cathartic. When We Were Infinite was published in March by Simon & Schuster, Now, we're joined by author Kelly Loy-Gilbert to discuss. Welcome, Kelly, to Fully Booked. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, it's an honor. When We Were Infinite, your beautiful book, of course, is one of Kirkus's best books of 2021. Congratulations. Thank you so much. Such an honor. Um, A very well-deserved one, I'd say. This is a book that I disclosed before we started rolling that uh, made me cry multiple times. Very powerful book, very beautiful book. I think probably the best way for us to get in it is, if you would please, for the benefit of our listeners, tell them a little bit, what is this book about? So this book is about a high school senior named Beth, and she is growing up in the San Francisco Bay Area, and she's kind of ongoingly grieving the loss of her parents' marriage. Her dad left the family, so it's just her and her mom now, and she's kind of really internalized, like... Why did he leave? What what was it about me that that made him want to do this? Um, and so, to as kind of a life raft, she's clinging to her group of um, four close friends. There are four. Or they're they're a group of five in the San Francisco area. They're they're all Asian American. Beth is mixed race, and they're all these really sort of talented, intense musicians. Um, and this is like her found family. This is like her reason for living. 
she she cares about these people so much and she's also in love with one of them named Jason. Um he may or may not know, she's not totally sure, but she's never told anybody about this because she doesn't want to jeopardize the friendship. And during her senior year, she's kind of looking ahead to the future when the five of them are not going to all be at the same school anymore. She's not really sure how she's going to survive it. And during the year, the five of them, I guess the four of them witness something happening in Jason's home that really sort of throws them all into turmoil. And she kind of descends deeper and deeper into this situation where she's willing to give up basically anything of herself, anything she can to make things all right for Jason. Um, And she kind of has to figure out what that looks like. Like, how do you love someone without giving up yourself? Um, What does that mean? What does the future look like when you've kind of based your whole life around these people and then you know, chronology kind of happens and you're going to graduate high school, et cetera. Yeah. One thing that just like a note that kept sounding for me throughout was the idea of like turning points, like this, mm-hmm. this, these ideas of these moments being monumental in our lives mm-hmm. and how vivid that can feel for you when you're in high school. Yeah. I think the interesting thing about being young is no matter how like mature or insightful you are, you just straight up don't have the context. Like you don't, yeah. you know, you've never had any of this happen before. Like it's all new. And so anything could happen. You just don't know. You have no idea what it's going to be like. I know. And it's like, kids are of course really super smart. And these, this, the characters in this book, especially, you know, they're high flying musicians. They work really hard. They have a very high level of exchange in Perry, but it's like, you know, when when you are young, absent the context, you come, sometimes come to these conclusions that probably, you know, are different from how maybe 90% of other people would see it. I remember mm-hmm. being a kid and my, <laughs> my father was like a terrible watcher of children. So my mother never let him watch us. And one fourth of July, he took me to the beach with his friend and I ate a bag of cheese doodles as big as my torso. Nice. And when, when I was sick that night in the shower, I realized like at age seven, I was like, I must be allergic to cheese doodles. Oh, no. <laughs> and I, I'm telling you the truth. I didn't eat them at parties for the next 10 years. I swear, there was no Google back then. You know what I mean? But like, I came to this conclusion as an elementary schooler that I was allergic to one thing and it was cheese doodles. Cheese doodles, yeah. Yes. And so like, you know, there are so many moments that really made my heart go, you know, in this book yeah. when when I would see that Beth had come to certain conclusions about her life or perceptions of her family dynamics or friend dynamics that mm-hmm. weren't in line with the way I saw it as your reader. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that was that was really interesting to write because um, I think in a first-person narrative and I would say especially as a female writing about females and as a mixed-race person writing about a mixed-race person, like everyone assumes it's about you, right? Like everyone's like, <laughs> oh, this is like... But um, I think so much of what Beth thinks and feels is like what I would hope no one would ever feel. Like I think a lot of it is kind of heartbreaking. Um, But And so it's interesting kind of having a character who thinks things and you're seeing it through her lens, but then you're also kind of hoping the reader can maybe see around that lens or sort of recognize where she's coming from without feeling like this is like, the authorial voice trying to tell you it's the moral of the story or right. something. Yeah. Totally. And it's interesting to see as the book goes on to see her bounce up again, her friends, especially in this little tight-knit group, and have them comment on their perception of the thing you were thinking about, you know, moving mm-hmm. forward as the reader. It's mm-hmm. it's a it's very cool. 
It's a very cool book. Thanks. (laughs) (laughs) Now, you mentioned there's an incident at Jason's house, and I get the sense that I, well, I'll just ask, how do you feel about spoilers, spoiler alerts, you know, like going through forward with the plot? Because I'm, I plan going forward to take care not to mention what happens there or to mention a couple of other key pivot points. But how do you feel about spoilers generally? You know, it's interesting because, so no one's ever asked me this. This is an interesting oh. question. When I was first an author, I felt like it was like the sacrosanct thing. I was always like, oh my gosh, like have to be so careful. Can't like mm. give too much away. And I would talk in these kind of vague things. And then I have to say, the more I was around librarians and I would talk to all these great librarians and do all these events at libraries, like, I feel like librarians love spoilers. They want to know the whole story. (laughs) They want to know, like, every plot point, right? So, like, I feel like I'm a little less allergic to spoilers than (laughs) I used to be. I can see their value. And sometimes as a reader, I'll read something and I'll start a book. Actually, I was reading, I started reading The Other Black Girl Mm. the other night. It's so fascinating. And a couple pages in, I was like... I need to know what happens. So I went and I like read all the spoilers and, you know, now I'm going to read the book, but I think it, I don't know. I I think people have mixed, mixed feelings on spoilers and now I understand better. Yeah. It's interesting because like there's like the, and this book also really got me thinking about the relationship of like the spoiler alert to the trigger warning, because at the beginning Mm -hmm. there's Mm -hmm. a note, dear reader, you know, that says at the bottom of the following page, you can choose to read or choose not to read, you know, some content here that some readers might find difficult. And I thought that was a really fine way to do that. Like, I was wondering, was there a lot of conversation about how that would be included and whether that would be included? We did talk a lot about that. I kind of wanted it somewhere hidden in the book. So I, there was, I think at some point, some discussion about maybe putting it on the cover or somewhere really visible, but I worried mm-hmm. that, you know, I was picturing a kid browsing through the bookstore, just kind of casually looking at something and then like, bam, getting hit with this like trigger warning and like that itself being triggering. Um, yeah. So I wanted it to be somewhere where you could hopefully engage with as much of your own agency as you wanted. Um, so that was kind of what we felt was maybe the most effective place to put it. Yeah. Um, I've heard from a few readers that they, it really worked for them. So that was, that was great to hear. Yeah. Now, this book, I've, you know, in my own little, my own little preparation for our conversation today, um, I get a whiff of the idea that it took a long time to write this book. Is that correct? It did. I started writing this book, not even kidding, in 2004. Mm. Yes, 2004. Is that right? Yeah. No. No, like 2006. Um, so like in the original draft, everyone used a landline, like no one had email. Like <laughs> I was, was going to ask. Yeah. 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 So, I mean, it was a different world then. So yeah, it, it took me over a decade, like a decade and a half to write this book. That's so interesting because like on the topic of keeping it current, it, like these these characters feel very of of the now to me and oh, i really <laughs> like and i really wondered about the care it takes to to capture and evoke that with the with especially technology changing changing so swiftly mm-hmm. you know and of course teenagers are usually like the early adopters of the new technology mm-hmm. yeah it's so interesting like i feel like teens now when i think about you know who i was in high school um I feel like technology is a huge thing because when I was in high school, it was kind of like right on the cusp of the internet era. But for most of my teenage years, I didn't have access to it at home. And I feel like, you know, just in terms of like worldview, like you're, it's so much more limited. Like you literally only know what people in your immediate circle are telling you and you kind of have no other way to, 
Um, and now, you know, I feel like teens are so much more aware. They're so much smarter. They engage so much more with the world around them um, in ways that, like, I never even would have considered when I was that age. And so it's interesting. And, like, I think I was, like, a super, super sheltered teenager. And I think it's mm. so much more rare these days for people to be that way. And so, yeah, that's always kind of interesting when writing about young people today. Yeah. It, again, if if I were a teenager now, I wouldn't have wasted all those years not eating the cheese doodle. Yeah. You know? <laughs> like, I would have found my community that would have, yeah. would have helped me out of that. But one thing that I found fascinating, and like, I'm, <laughs> I'm uh, 39 years old. You know, I went to mm-hmm. high school in the 1990s, and we didn't have a computer until like my last couple of years of high yeah. school. And it was mm-hmm. with a 14 Ford dial-up modem. Yes. And it's just like... And no one could be on the phone, yeah. No, no. I can still hear that sound in my yep. dreams. But it's like, you know, one thing I noticed as a reader of this book is that like, you know, so many more like concepts are accessible to teens today. As mm-hmm. we as we all know, as we can see, I'm also queer. And so like that mm-hmm. wasn't great in the 90s. But here oh, yeah. it's like, you know, there it's there's much more of a flow. It's much more incorporated into these kids' lives. Also the idea of consent. But one thing you see is like, you know, even though consent is talked about more, it's not like everybody is born into practicing it properly for themselves. Totally. Yeah. So that was something I thought was really cool about this book too, because it it challenges like the kind of like easy notion, like, oh, well, all the kids are queer now and all of them know about informed consent and like, mm-hmm. we're, we're, we're done here. And like, no, it's an ongoing conversation and it's something everybody has to learn about for themselves. Mm-hmm. I think that totally, I think that's such a good point. And I think that totally goes back to that idea of context. Like you you might hear these things and you know, sort of maybe intellectually like, oh yeah, consent, but you've never had that arise like within your own relationships. Like you sort of don't know your own maybe boundaries or ideas. You don't know what you're allowed to say, what you're allowed to ask for. And I think it's so different sort of hearing it or kind of, you know, knowing it versus like, here you are, experience it for the first time. Like you're 16, like what's going on? (laughs) So returning back to, you know, the idea of this being a long process, starting in mm-hmm. 2006, like what what was your writing process for this? How did the whole piece take form? How do you write? So I usually write a draft that ends up getting just like totally trashed. And I think it takes me, I'm kind of a slow writer, and I think it takes me a while to kind of find the heart of the story. Um, so for this one... It was actually originally about this orchestra that had this like conductor that was like really beloved and the conductor grew ill um, and it was kind of about them like sort of rallying around him and each other. And in the original draft, the conductor in the book, uh, his name is Mr. Irving. He was like one of the most important characters in the story. Also, I think there was no, I'm trying to remember, I think there was nothing between Beth and Jason. They were just all like sort of platonic friends. I don't know. I think I feel like I just usually have to like keep writing and writing until I find the character. It's kind of this like chicken and egg catch 22 where it's like, (laughs) I don't really know what the plot's going to be until I know who the people are, but I don't really know who the people are until I know like what they're going to be doing, what's going to be happening. Um, So I feel like I kind of just like write in a circle and it's kind of this like all this stuff like swirling around the drain until finally like some of it kind of breaks through and I'm left with whatever is there at the bottom. So I think the things that always stayed the same, though, was I really wanted to write a story about an orchestra. Like, I thought Mm. it was so interesting to think about how these people were going to relate to each other, like, in this sort of group setting and just kind of using music as a lens that they would see the world through. And I always wanted them to be, like, a really, really tight-knit group. 
And I really wanted them to be Asian American growing up in the Bay Area. Uh, mm. When I was in high school, there were none of those stories. And so that was something I was always really wanted to see in books. I saw in the um, acknowledgement section of this book, you said you're grateful for the work of authors who've paved the way in terms of representing different Asian American experiences in literature, mm-hmm. including Melinda Lowe. Hey, yes, I was- the National Book Award. So I was, thrilling. I, like, honestly, when you just said that, again, the hair on the back of my neck went up because I was so happy. I had the privilege of interviewing her about last oh, night yes. at the Telegraph Club. And I just thought she was a star and that that that, that book won and was recognized in that way. I'm like clutching my heart right now. I'm still so happy. Yes. It's so thrilling. Have you had a chance to read that one? I haven't yet. I've been, um, it's one of my reward books that I've been Mm. saving for myself when I finish the draft of the thing I'm working on. So I'm really excited. I've heard so many good things. You just put a phrase to something I, like something that's true about my life, a reward book, but I never yeah. have called it that it's before. Thing, right? Yeah. yeah, it's such a thing. Like when you're in books or you're a writer, you know, like you, you have your workbooks, right? Totally, totally. And then you have your reward books. Well, that's that's a good one. That's a good one. <laughs> Oh my God. It's very interesting to think too about like, I'm, I love the choice of an orchestra and, you know, like these, these very skilled young musicians and thinking about, you know, like you really got me back into thinking about the emotion in music. Like Mm -hmm. there's technical proficiency and then there's emotion. And this is something you talk about a lot in the book through these various characters. And it really kind of just jives with you know, what's going on in these interpersonal relationships as well. You know, like what is allowed to come out? What what facets, you know, they mm-hmm. choose to express as musicians and what facets of themselves they choose to express to one another. Mm-hmm. It's interesting. I think one thing that's really interesting about being that age is so much of your life is so structured. Like you have, you know, your seven periods, whatever. And so I think the ways that people sort of find agency and find sort of these like niche communities to express themselves and like have like power and influence are like so fascinating to me. I think for a lot of kids it's sports, it might be a club, it might be music, maybe like a social group, whatever. And so, yeah, I think everything you were saying, like that super resonates with me. And like, that was something I really wanted to explore through, through the music. Another thought that this relates to for me is, you know, like parents dreams for their kids versus the kids dreams for themselves. And like, Mm -hmm. also furthermore, the the parents who dream that their kids will be independent and confident enough to make their own choices, like that they Mm -hmm. will empower them to make their own choices. And then the parents who are duty first, Mm -hmm. you know, Mm -hmm. it's a lot of layers. It's like a Napoleon pastry. If I'm going (laughs) to pull something out of my own Italian American life. (laughs) That was my grandfather's favorite favorite dessert. Excellent taste. Excellent choice. Um, What else do you want our listeners to know about this book? What else were you writing towards? What were you seeking to explore if it was was, like that? Yeah. I was at one of my book events a couple years ago. I was at uh, Parnassus Books and Mm. the wonderful um, bookseller who was doing the event, she asked those of us who were speaking, she said, what is the one question you're always asking in every book that you write. And I thought that was so interesting. Um, I loved hearing people's answers. And I think, um, I think for me, that question is always going to be, what do we owe one another? Um, What are you sort of allowed to ask for from each other? What are you allowed to give people? Um, What are you obligated to sort of like those questions? And 
I think that was the thing I was really interested in, in in this book. I think possibly more so when I was growing up, when we were growing up, um, but still very much today. I think especially for girls, there's so much pressure around giving and thinking about others' needs and sort of smoothing the path for like the men around you. And I think sort of the concept of being able to say, you know, this is this is what I need or, you know, here's what I want. I think that was something that I wasn't very familiar with. And I feel like I still see that a lot in, in young girls and other marginalized kids. That was something I really wanted to explore, what that looks like and the ways you can kind of lose yourself. I think also I wanted ultimately to write like a, a hopeful story. And I think just the ways that you can kind of go to just like the deepest depths and like, how do you find your way back? Um, I feel like I'd read a lot of stories about um, suicide that kind of dealt with like the aftermath or just, you know, the despair leading up to it. Um, and I felt like I'd read fewer about what if it it's an incomplete suicide attempt? Like, how do you then get your life going again? Like, where do you find hope? Like, how do you rebuild at that point? Um, and I kind of really wanted to explore that, just that idea that, you know, things can be so, so bad. But again, it's sort of that context thing where, you know, it's the worst it's ever been for you. Like, it's so horrible. And yet, maybe there is hope on the other side. Maybe you you can find a way out of it. You can find sort of a way to put yourself back together and be whole again. Um, you just haven't done it yet. And so it it seems like it can't happen, but it, it can. Yeah. I was so heartened to see you explore that. I don't, and I don't believe I've ever seen that depicted in fiction, YA or adult or, or anything before, you know, uh, you know, an incomplete, you know, attempt. Mm -hmm. And furthermore to like pull out the lens and, you know, explore what it means for that character mm -hmm. and all the characters that are so very tied to that character yeah. and how overwhelming, you know, life becomes. Mm -hmm. But it's like, there's, there, you know, like if you live a long life, if you live, you know, if you live some years, there's always an, an ebb and flow to that. But when you're right. in the overwhelm, it is, it is that thing. It is chaotic. And even the good can, can feel, can give you that overwhelmed, yeah. welling <laughs> feeling, right? Yeah. You know? Yeah. It's so hard being that age too, because like you have in some situations, like I just feel like you have so little agency over your life and these things that are happening to you and everything yeah. is so structured. And, you know, no matter how bad things are, like with another person, like you still got to see them in second period Spanish, like they're all, you know, and so <laughs> yeah. I think that's, yeah, I think it's easy to forget as adults how hard that is. It is too, and it's interesting to see the younger characters judging adults, you know, for the, for for their various failures. And it's like you're you're right, but you know what I mean. Yeah. It's like it's like I see I see it from that perspective, certainly, but also the you know you when you're young. I remember being like, I can't wait till I get my license. I can't yeah. wait till I go to college. <laughs> I'm going to be so like wild and free. And yet, it doesn't always play out that way. Mm -hmm. And before you know it, you have a mortgage and you have a family <laughs> and you have all yeah. these people to whom you're responsible. And, you know, you're not always expressing maybe your, your true bliss with every yeah. move you make. <laughs> <laughs> but you can eat cheese doodles whenever you want for breakfast. There's so. <laughs> that, right? <laughs> I wish I had. <laughs> oh, but there's so many really intricate, interesting 
things in this in this novel. It's truly special. And I'm really grateful to you for having had the experience of reading it. Oh, well, that's so kind. I really appreciate that. And yeah, thank you for reading it. Oh, it's, it's, it was my pleasure. And it's my pleasure to speak with you today. So I will just end by asking my most hospitable question, which is, is there anything else uh, you'd like our listeners to know about the book or anything on your mind about writing, being an author? Anything goes. Um, I think I would just like to say a thank you to everyone who's reading right now. Like I remember at the beginning of the pandemic, it was like, oh my gosh, is publishing going to exist still? Like Mm -hmm. books are going to go away forever. And (laughs) I feel like it's been a really, a time I've been really thankful to be a part of like a book community. Like I think that so many people have found so much solace in, in stories. And I'm just really thankful for everyone who keeps that going and makes that possible. Kelly, thank you so much for joining me today on Fully Booked. Thank you so much, Megan. That was Kelly Lloyd Gilbert, author of When We Were Infinite, published by Simon & Schuster, one of Kirkus's best books of 2021. After the break, we'll be joined by Young Readers editor Laura Simeon to discuss Kirkus's best books of 2021 in Young Readers literature. That's picture books, middle grade, and YA. You're listening to Fully Booked by Kirkus Reviews. This message is brought to you by Richard Brem, author of UBU. Faced with a blank canvas, a young girl finds her creative spirit in Brem's unusual picture book. Emerging from a dark forest, a sickle moon overhead, a young girl enters a whispery house at the edge of the wild, where mysterious old master paint awaits her in a cape of luminous, swirling colors. Too tongue-tied and uncertain to say her name, The girl is given a bucket and a brush and led down strange hallways, upstairs to a room dominated by an enormous white canvas. Hers to paint, she is told. It is her own life the girl is painting, and she can choose to dream large, grab on, you're just getting started, such adventures to come. The offbeat cadence of inspirational, rhyming, and almost rhyming text winds through dreamlike images by award-winning Brazilian author and illustrator Colo. Shadowed rooms, odd angles, and haunting details, rich abstractions of patterns and color, and showers of light reflect the little girl's initial hesitation to claim her place in the world and her subsequent celebratory sense of self-discovery. In our review, Kirkus called UBU, quote, an uplifting, eye-filling adventure encouraging children to realize their innate creativity and individuality, end quote. Readers can find UBU on Amazon.com. The ultimate insider scoop on the latest books, right here on Fully Booked. I'm joined now by my colleague, Young Readers Editor Laura Simeon, to discuss the best books of 2021. Hi, Laura. Hi, Megan. I'm so happy to have you all to myself. <laughs> <laughs> Though I'm, I'm sad that uh, Young Readers Editor Summer Edward is unable to join us at this time. We miss you, Summer. You know, she was really looking forward to talking about some of these great books. Well, we will try to, to do these great books justice. First of all, I mean, every year is a good year in books, right? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Was there anything that distinguished 2021 in YRL? You know, I will say 
I mean, we have 300 best of picks for this year, 100 picture books, 100 middle grade, 100 young adult. I feel like it was such a strong year. And the one pattern I would say is sheer variety. Like mm. So many, I, I feel like young readers publishing is starting to recognize um, just the richness of so many different stories including stories from around the world. And we're getting more wonderful translated books, which is exciting and just a a greater variety every year of voices from within the U.S. as well. And, you know, we're just so fortunate. I feel like I could have picked another, you know, few hundred that would have been equally worthy, you know, almost. And and, yeah. I know that's the perpetual conundrum, right? Mm -hmm. You know, I, I, look at these lists and there's so much goodness on them, but I feel the same way, you know, I'm like, oh, it could have been completely different and I could have loved this just as much. And I hate leaving anybody out, you know, it's like, oh, there's this other book I wish I could do 150 or 200, but we have to draw a line somewhere. I know, certainly. And um, when I was talking with Lori Muchnick for the fiction episode of our best books coverage here on the podcast, we were we were talking a little bit about what you see on Twitter, you know, when the list comes out, you know, that certain authors, you know, can feel slighted and others, yes. but we love seeing the encouraging authors saying, mm-hmm. you know what, a list doesn't define you. You created this beautiful work of art that you poured your heart and soul into and, you know, like be proud. You are, exactly. You are great. Exactly. Yeah. And so that's like, but my, my heart goes out. It's, it's complicated, you know? It is. And we're taking so many different things into consideration as well, you know, wanting to highlight different elements of, you know, put together a balanced list. You know how they say in college admissions are looking (laughs) to create (laughs) diversity within the class. Yes, Yes. It's like that too, you know? Yeah. Yeah, I think of that as like, you know, a group as an organism, right? Mm-hmm. You know, like an audience or a, or a freshman incoming freshman class at a college. Yes. Yeah, so it's it's, you know, there's a there's a little bit of an art to it and maybe a little bit of a science. Mhm. I'm also thinking about all the different readers, you know, this is not yeah. the list of books I personally most want to read or you know what I yeah. mean? It's 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 thinking about the variety of tastes out there, hopefully a little something for everybody, different genres and reading levels and so on. Okay. So let's dig into the list a little, if we may, as you mentioned, mm-hmm. three lists. We've got a hundred picture books, a hundred middle grade titles, and then a hundred YA books. Uh, where do you want to start? We can start with picture books. So what okay. I was, as I was preparing, I was thinking about books that we have not talked about on the podcast, Mm, just to give people ideas of other things, you know, because we highlight so many great books throughout the year. Um, And so, and the picture book list um, was put together by Vicki Smith before she moved on to other things. Um, So yes, but I have read a decent number of them and I just wanted to draw attention to one that I really love. It's 10 Little Dumplings Mm. by Larissa Fan, illustrated by Cindy Wume. And it's inspired by the author's own family, um, Taiwanese family with 10 brothers Mm. and one sister. And the, the brothers are 
sort of, you know, the apple of their parents' eyes and yeah. so apples, apples of their parents' eyes. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> the 10 brothers are very special. They're, they're called the little dumplings, you know, that's sort of an auspicious sign. And everybody thinks, you know, they're so fortunate to have these 10 sons. And then there's this little girl. And, and it's such a great book because it really encourages readers to look closely at absences, you know, it's easy to notice what's there and it's often really hard to notice what's missing. So it's like, who's not, and, and, and the sister, she is there. You just have to look for her. You have to, and, and children love, you know, like where's Waldo, that type of book I spy. And so it, it brings in the fun of that. Oh, let's look really closely at each page and see if we can spot her. But mm-hmm. on a much deeper level, you know, as, as you grow up and then think about it more, it also encourages, encourages you to look at history, family history, national history, all these, who is written out, who is overlooked, who's not mentioned, whose stories are not told. And, um, and it's very, charming it's deep and charming and optimistic that sounds so good i i want to buy that right now you should (laughs) (laughs) and and i love i love your your, the impulse to give airtime to maybe books we haven't talked about on the podcast before but and yet i this is almost like a compulsion i can't help but mention a book that i was really thrilled to see on the best books picture book list which is we are still here Native American Truths Everyone Should Know by Tracy Sorrell, illustrated by Frené Lessig. And of course, this uh, Tracy Sorrell was the, I believe, and I mean, I might have to come back and correct myself if I'm wrong, but I believe Tracy Sorrell was the first picture book author to Mm -hmm. be the lead author interview on this podcast. And I just loved what she had to say. I love this book. I just recommended this to a friend last night. And Mm -hmm. in brief, you know, for those who haven't heard the episode yet, which you should go check out, it was earlier this year. um, We are still here. It's kind of like, it's this gorgeous picture book. And it's told in the format of, you know, students at a a Native American school giving presentations about like Native history and Native law. And Tracy, of course, has a background in that. That's her area of study and practice. And I learned so many fascinating things, you know, about like from this book. It's really, it's really incredible. It is. And I, I think you're right. I think We Are Grateful was the first picture book to be the the focus for the the podcast, but yeah, that's that's such an incredible book. I love it. Yeah, so definitely I, worth mentioning again. Yes, so that that's that's a. For, oof, I was really happy to see that on the list. Mm-hmm. Um, shall we talk a little bit about middle grade? Yes. So for middle grade, I was thinking about you know what really distinguishes a middle grade title and. For me, with the two I picked, the things they have, they're very, very different. But what they have in common is they're completely immersive, this really strong sense of place, and you feel transported. And also the the voices are very authentically childlike, you know, not forced, not too cutesy, not Mm. too precocious. It's really hard to hit the right note for that age range. Um, And... They're also both about very challenging and difficult life circumstances, which young children do live through, unfortunately, but they're presented in this completely, I don't want to say age appropriate because that's such a loaded word, which is behind many book challenges, but just in a way that I would say is developmentally um, right, like reflecting a, a certain view of 
the world and how you grapple with these big questions and, um, you know, ask hard questions that adults often can't answer. So the first one is Born Behind Bars. It's by Padma Venkatraman and it has two main characters. So there's Kabir, who's um, a little boy who's Muslim and Hindu, like one Muslim parent, one Hindu parent. And there's Rani, who's um, a little girl who's Kurava or Roma. And mm -hmm. so Kabir has grown up entirely in this prison in Chennai because his mother was a servant for this wealthy family and was unjustly accused of theft and unjustly imprisoned. And he was born, literally born behind bars, grew up there. Um, and now he's considered too old, I'm trying to remember he's 10 or 11. He's considered too old to stay there anymore. And they've lost touch with his father. He's never met his father and he's basically being released, you know, separated from this only community he knew. And it's not great to grow up in prison, but at mm. least he was with his mother and some of the other children. So he ends up basically on the streets. He he runs into Rani, who um, has a parrot. And she she's you know she's very plucky. And the mm. two of them join for forces, and they decide they're going to Bengaluru to look for his dad and his dad's family, and they're going to try to find out what happened. And he wants justice for his mother. And it's a great book because it connects to. It's a contemporary story, and there are children around the world um, who un unfortunately are in this situation. Um, the author talks about, you know, social justice reform in the U.S. and elsewhere, and um, and it, it sounds so heavy, but it's just full of spirit and light and um, optimism. It's it's a great book. Wow, that sounds amazing. And also, the author narrated the audiobook and did a fabulous job. So, oh, really? Mm hmm. The second one is The Swallow's Flight by Hilary Mackay. And it's it's a companion sort of sequel, but it's it can work on its own to um, The Skylark's War, which was published in the US as Love to Everyone. And that first one was set around World War One. This one covers a couple of decades, the interwar period until after World War II. And Skylark's War, Love to Everyone, focused on an English English families. Um, this one has both England um, and Germany. And it's this ensemble cast that is so endearing that you want to be adopted. By them. Maybe they're living <laughs> through these terrible, terrible times. Where you're just like, you want to move in and be part of the family. It's just warm and loving. And and it's these kids trying to make sense. They're, they're not Jewish families in Germany. So it's mm -hmm. there's a lot of World War II books for young readers about, you know, the Holocaust, of course, very, yeah. very important. But I think it's also important to, you know, see, see the impact, you know, what was it like being a non-Jewish German child and, and what's going on? And wait a minute, you know, this war and, and uh, divisiveness and secrets and whispering and fear, everything that's happening. And um, she, she manages to bring everybody together. It's, it's not hard to track the characters the way it can be in some books with, you know, many, many individuals. And she, yeah. she brings everything very satisfyingly together and it's just lovely. Yeah. And that's hearkening back what, to what we were talking about at the top of the conversation, which is like this broadening of, you know, like there are, there are stories that are told more often than others in publishing. I mean, it's just a fact, but just that there are other stories that tend, it doesn't invalidate those, but like that we're getting more diverse content is a boon. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, very much so. 
Should we move on to YA? Yes. So, so um, speaking of broadening, so in YA, I picked Beyond the Blue Border by Dorit Linka, mm. translated by Elizabeth Laufer. And again, we have a lot of historical fiction about Germany, but very, very little about the 1980s, the collapse of communism, life in East Germany. And so immediately I was like, wow, this is, you know, this is great that we have this. So, and also even more special is Linka herself. She's from Rostock in East Germany. Um, so, and that's where the book is set. And it's about um, two teens, Hannah and Andreas. And they're two teenagers in the GDR in the late 80s, you know, and they, they, like to listen to kind of smuggled it like Western music and, you know, pop magazines when they can get them. Um, and, you know, life is not great, perfect, you know, things, things are rough. There's, there's rumblings, you know, in the Eastern Bloc um, discontent, but, you know, life is normal. It's normal for them. Right. Mm -hmm. Until they are severely punished for supposed like crimes against the state and, it, it basically looks unbearable at that point and escape looks like the way out. And um, they decide to swim because you're not going to get across the border, <laughs> you know, yeah. the heavily, you know, heavily um, the wall is there and the, the heavily armed border, but, but swimming might be a possibility. And so they take off for um, Feymarn, which is this, island in West Germany, you know, swimming through the North Sea, frigid conditions, it's hazardous, it's a shipping lane. I mean, there's so many things that could go wrong. And, and of course, tedious, you know, swimming for 24 hours, you know, it's how, how can you do this? So it's very cleverly constructed through flashbacks, because, you know, just reading like several hundred pages of people swimming <laughs> through frigid yeah, water yeah. would be rough. So, so she breaks it up. So you get a glimpse of what their life was like before, like what led to this. And so it's slowly you unravel this, like what would make them risk their lives to do this. And it's just absolutely gripping such a great book. Wow. Oh my God. It sounds like it. Whew. And of course, um, I know that you are a big fan of the book by this episode's uh, guest author, Kelly Lloyd Gilbert, when we were infinite. Yes, very oh. much so. I can't wait to hear the interview that you oh. did. Yeah, she was absolutely lovely, and I, I, I'll, I told her, and I'll tell you this: I cried multiple times reading yes. this book. Yeah, yes. it was very powerful. Mm -hmm. I feel like it, it, kind of like what I mentioned with well, actually with all three the uh, the middle grade and the YA one so far. That idea you're immersed in this very very specific, really well realized community. But there are so many universal elements. You know, anyone who's been a teenager and had teenage friends and, you know, family difficulties, which, you know, it, it's it's just so deeply moving. Oh, yeah, totally. Um, a couple of other titles I was really excited to see on this list, um, just, to, just to mention the titles, are Beast of Prey by Ayanna Gray. Mm -hmm. I love that one. I also was really psyched to see Feminist AF, A Guide to Crushing yes. Girlhood by Brittany Cooper, Chanel Craft Tanner, and Susanna M. Morris. And I know you spoke with them, didn't you? I, I so. did. I did have the have the pleasure and the privilege, and both of those excellent. Couldn't couldn't mm -hmm. recommend them highly enough. Those are so. great reads. And mm. I have just one more. I want to sneak oh, in, please, please. American Jaguar. It's by Elizabeth Webb. It's something completely different. It is 
a nonfiction account by a wildlife biologist of a keystone species. So jaguars, they're keystone species because if they are gone, it just, you know, there's sort of a linchpin in the ecosystem. And it's so fascinating. It shows, you know, their, their historic range from sort of Texas down to Argentina, but now has shrunk due to habitat fragmentation. And she, she helps readers really connect the dots. So you take this one, like very charismatic, appealing, you know, animal, and you show how the, all the issues that are having an impact on them are also having an impact on so many other species that maybe we don't think as much about amphibians and insects and so on. Um, climate change, human borders, you know, there's again, a lot of talk about the impact on people of building a border wall, possibly, you know, Um, but what would the impact be on wildlife? What about highways? You know, so she talks about all the things that affect um, various species and the knock-on effects for people and, you know, environmental collapse and all that, but also the things people are doing. So on the positive side, you're not completely despairing. And one little thing that just made me so happy as I was reading, you know, when you find something you weren't expecting so one of my very favorite picture books is A Boy and a Jaguar by Alan Rabinowitz, illustrated by Katya Chen. And it's a true story. Um, he passed away a few years ago, but he was a wildlife biologist who worked with the government of Belize um, mm. to help protect jaguars and create this um, sort of uh, great study-based tracking and and protected areas. But he also had a serious stutter. and that was very hard for him in his life, but with animals, the stutter vanished. And so it's this very beautiful book about um, just our, you know, relationships with animals um, and, and finding your voice, you know, when something means so much to you and gaining that strength and so on. But she talks about him. There's quite a bit about him in the book as well because of the work he did. And so I just, it reminded me of that lovely picture book which was a favorite of many of my Storytime students. Oh, my gosh. Laura, I could listen to you talk about books all day, legitimately. I love it. (laughs) (laughs) I love it. You know, like the, the, the passion just shows, you know. Well, you know, all those years as a librarian, you spend a lot of time pushing books on people. <laughs> Is it a particular kind of glee as the librarian to connect the right reader with the right book? It is. It's it's the best thing, you know, when, when the kid came back into the library saying, I loved this book, I want more. But I did, I did always, always, always tell them because there's a power imbalance, you know, mm-hmm. teacher, student, adult, child. I said, it's okay if you don't like this book. And when you tell me, about a book that you didn't like, that's really, really helpful because it gives me more information to help you find a book you'll like more. So I think it's very important. Oh my God. We all need librarians like you and editors like you, Laura. Oh <laughs> thank God. You. <laughs> <laughs> thank, thank you. And is there anything else you want our listeners to know about the year in YRL or 2021. I won't, I, I have, I have, um, reining myself in as I did with Lori. Like I won't push into, you know, what are you excited to see in 2022? <laughs> no, this is, this moment is for the books of 2021. Long may they wave. Well, so. I, I will just say, you know, please check out the lists, you know, mm-hmm. share them, but also go beyond the lists because like I said, there's so many other truly, truly wonderful books that it was painful not to be able to include. So don't, stop with the lists. 
my dear colleague, Laura Simeon. Thank you so much for joining us today and talking about the best books of 2021. Thank you. Well, that does it for another episode of Fully Booked. Thank you so much for joining us. Please join us again next week for the third and final installment in our best books coverage. Last but not least, we'll have nonfiction, and my guest will be Cynthia Barnett, author of The Sound of the Sea, Seashells and the Fate of the Ocean. Then we'll be joined by nonfiction editor Eric Liebetrau, who will tell us about his work on the best books of 2021. But until then, you know what to do. Turn this thing off and go read a book. Thanks for listening to Fully Booked by Kirkus Reviews. Check out new episodes every Tuesday at podcastone.com, on the Podcast One app, or you can subscribe on iTunes.